Welcome to the pod. In a minute, I'm going to be having a chat with return full cast and crew guest Fraser Rice, who's a good Twitter follow, at Fraser Rice. Fraser's day job is helping people appreciate the fundamentals of investing in estate planning, but Batman-like, by night, He's a fully formed child of the 80s, a comic book geek, a horror film nerd, an author, and particularly relevant to this episode, a big-time James Bond fan. I've previously had Fraser on to deep dive into the criminally underappreciated George Lazenby Bond film On Her Majesty's Secret Service. That film, for my money, is the very best Bond film of them all, or at least the most interesting Bond film, given the bizarre backstory of George Lazenby being plucked from obscurity to fill the shoes of no less than Sean Connery, who at the time was relinquishing his 007 status after five films which forever established the blueprint of Bond. Lazenby famously turned down a contract to star in seven more Bond films. So if you're interested in Bond or the vagaries of major film franchises or really fun 1960s film romps with lots of great sound bites and music, check out our episode on Her Majesty's Secret Service. The idea that many in the British film industry and audience would have had in their mind before the very first Bond film was released in 1961 was probably someone like David Niven. He was the current on-screen ideal of the British male. When the smoldering Sean Connery hits screens, doing things his own way, leading with confidence and no small measure of sheer physical brutality, it proved quite a sensation and indeed a redefinition of British masculinity. This idea comes full circle with Daniel Craig's recent run as Bond. Today I'm talking with Frazier because I just saw No Time to Die, the final film in the five-film, 16-year run of Daniel Craig portraying Bond. And the franchise is about to enter a new and undetermined chapter in its 60-year history to date. Amazon recently purchased MGM, the film studio that's long been home and partner to the Bond franchise, and with a new Bond on the horizon and society and culture being where they are, I think there's a collective sense that it's finally time to stretch the Bond character out beyond the established white character that's long been a part of the popular imagination. So where does Bond go from here? Who would be interesting to see play Bond? Could we see a Bond of color? A female Bond? A young Bond origin series to complement forthcoming films? And how long a pause has the franchise typically taken over the years between Bonds? There's lots to discuss. So here's my conversation with Fraser Rice about James Bond. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm excited to talk some Bond with you. We were texting a little bit about uh, my thoughts and your thoughts with regard to No Time to Die. You are the podcast's resident Bond expert. A, a high honor. <laughs> I believe that your Bondism encompasses 
the books, the films, perhaps some of the graphic novels. You, you're 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 well versed in all things Bond. It's safe to say. That's the hope. I'm uh, and and the new movie provided some good service to to freaks like me, but I think we have some good conflict too because uh, I'm not sure I loved all the choices they made. <laughs> and I know you you liked some of them, so th- that yes. makes for good radio, right, or good podcast. It should. I think, yeah, the fan service part, I, I loved, I enjoyed the most. I probably didn't pick up on all the little nuggets, but as you know, my favorite Bond film is On Her Majesty's Secret Service, and my favorite Bond is George Lazenby. So any film that contains so many homages to that film, I'm all on, on board for. But we'll talk about that when we get down there. I want to first start by talking about the unique business of Bond, because I can't think of another franchise that's literally family-owned in the film world. Well, Amazon just recently bought the rights to the Bond franchise for about $8.5 billion. And so, you know, the Broccoli's, who were the real engines producing the Bonds, and Big Bezos uh, running the show and and trying to figure out how to monetize what's, you know, been just a 50-year cash cow for, for all involved. Right. So what you're referring to is that Amazon bought MGM, yep. which is the studio. I would I don't know enough to say I don't think that MGM quote unquote owns Bond as much as has a relationship with the Broccoli family because let's go back to the beginning where you have Albert R. Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman in 1961 purchasing the rights to Ian Fleming's novels. That's where Bond began. Essentially the children of Albert Broccoli and Harry Saltzman continue to be involved at Eon Productions slash executive producer level for each subsequent Bond film. So what happens to that relationship going forward? I don't know. With Amazon essentially becoming the studio, you know, I guess that will be interesting to see what happens. One of my things that I don't think we can answer is, you know, in our business, in the TV business or the film business, you know, you have active participation and you have passive participation. So in my world, whoever's putting up the money to make the movie is really the person who is in control. I don't think Barbara Broccoli is putting up money to make James Bond films, right? I think MGM was doing that and probably Amazon will now do that. that that's my suspicion is that, uh, you know, Amazon is going to be writing the checks. I believe No Time to Die cost 250 or 350 million with Mm. marketing and things like that. So uh, it's not a family enterprise anymore. Uh, I think they will, they will probably keep the broccolis on in some form or another. Okay. I've Googled a little information here from a screen rant article that may be helpful. It says that MGM has co-ownership of the James Bond movie rights with Dan Jack LLC. Now Dan Jack LLC is maybe a bit complicated, but Broccoli and Saltzman in 1961 formed a holding company named Danjack. Danjack holds the rights to the James Bond films and licenses it to Eon Productions, which is also owned by the Broccoli's and the Saltzmans. Right. You're essentially licensing the film rights to yourself in a nice little bit of Hollywood accounting. Yep. So it says that Eon is a family-run corporation currently run by Barbara Broccoli and her half-brother, Michael Wilson. 
Oh, complicated already. It's a, <laughs> this is getting into your area of expertise. That's right. It also says Eon Productions is independent of MGM and therefore not included in Amazon's buyout. So anything James Bond related that Amazon wanted to make would have to be approved by Eon. Right. That's an interesting wrinkle. The comparison might be Disney's relationship with Spider-Man, you know, where there's an agreement between Sony, I believe, and Disney right. so that the character can appear in the MCU films, but is, I guess, ultimately owned and controlled by Sony. So I guess it will be one of the things TBD on Bond business to come, but it is a strange and unique situation where it, certainly at least you know, lip service is paid to the idea that Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson are the producers, quote unquote, of this film. But as I said, there are many names that appear on screens, but it's who controls the purse strings that's really the producer. So, yeah, the other interesting part, too, is, you know, it all came from Ian Fleming's, you know, brain uh, and mm-hmm. books. And so we're, we're now another level of abstraction away from, you know, the ultimate vision of the author. And, you know, I think we'll get into that with without No Time to Die sort of tries to encapsulate some of those things and also charts new Charts new courses with the character and, you know, with a with a veto power, with the broccolis, with the money making thirst of an Amazon, it's going to be a lot of decision making. It'll be it'd be fun to be in the room to listen to those arguments. I mean, I think we know Amazon certainly will spend to get the result. I think of zero, 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 which is a limited series that I'm a huge fan of that Amazon produced at a globally epic feature film scale. This thing looks absolutely stunning takes place all over the world so it will be interesting to see of course bond up until this point has always been a theatrical experience so we're going to get into that whole issue if and when the next bond film appears what does the world look like then are our films still being released on streamers and in theaters or has that changed so there's many many things to be figured out now The Bond franchise is the fourth highest grossing film series of all time. Do you know what the other three are? All right. I am going to guess the Star Wars, uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and then the third one is going to be trickier. I will go with Harry Potter. You are correct. Marvel number one, 23 billion. Star Wars, 10 billion. Harry Potter, 9 billion. I don't know how they're arriving at those those numbers, but. Well, and it's interesting too, because James Bond has had a much longer tenure. You know, you throw that inflation adjusted, it might be a little bit different. <laughs> you know, a- Amazon able to participate in one of the top four franchises. I mean, it's like, it's impossible to replicate and your job is to just not screw it up going forward. Well, I should speak on behalf of the accountants for the studios that own Marvel, Star Wars, and Harry Potter and Bond and say that none of those films have reached a profit yet. Interesting. <laughs> that's, a Hollywood, that's a Hollywood accounting joke for you. That's right. Uh, I, I actually saw an article that maybe you saw about No Time to Die that sort of hilariously posited that even though the film has made some insane amount of money, there was an article in The Hollywood Reporter or somewhere that said, you know, we may lose money on this. 
which I just thought was hilarious. I don't think no, I mean, it, it, true. it makes makes seven hundred and fifty million dollars and they say <laughs> that the all in costs are three hundred and fifty. It's you know, wait a second. There's a yeah. three hundred and fifty what looks like profit. Where is that all going? That, in a word, is how Hollywood works. Well, th- here's the thing that's interesting about Bond and I think why we can make an argument that it's a worthwhile franchise to keep going because I think every time there's a a change of Bond, there's the discussion, you know, is Bond relevant? Do we need Bond? What does Bond look like going forward? We'll get into that a little bit later in our discussion here as we talk about rumored next Bonds. But when I look at this list of the highest grossing film series of all time, I'm, I'm gladdened that Bond is on here because certainly the three others are all in the science fiction slash fantasy universe. And really one of them with Harry Potter is kind of in the children's universe, even though I'm a big Harry Potter fan. Many adults are. So Bond is kind of unique in being on this list in that place, in fourth place, because ostensibly they are for adults and they're not science fiction, right? It's an action series, I guess you could call it, espionage series. So the fact that these movies can be made at, my God, what did they spend on No Time to Die? $250 million? Yep. Plus another... 300 million to market supposedly yeah it's a big check not a lot of movies are getting made at that level that don't have marvel characters in them right well and it's a strange it's a strange franchise in the sense well maybe not strange back in the day but strange now in that it really is sort of a a marker for let's call it North American white male aspiration and everything that goes along with that. That subset is that's not in fashion right now. And and how do you make a franchise that has such a storied history, such bloodlines in many ways that go back in a very deep way to even old Hollywood, if we go back to 1961 and make it relevant for today. Uh, and that's, that's what the broccolis and Amazon are, are thinking about right now, I'm sure, as they take a look at how the movie's done and the decisions they made in the movie and where they go from here. Absolutely. I think that's going to be a big consideration. And as you say, more so than ever, it could perhaps be the time. They've certainly considered it before. I was just reading that Colin, Sam, Colin Salmon, I don't know that actor, but apparently he was considered to replace Pierce Brosnan before the role went to Daniel Craig. So he would have been the first black Bond. Right. And apparently Brosnan backed him. So, you know, I, I think that time is coming. And I think the franchise will probably be better off for doing something. But let's talk about that when we get to the next Bond. In terms of the business of Bond, it's an interesting role for any actor to take on because historically, it defines you as an actor. It's safe to say. I think even Sean Connery, who's probably had the most, had the longest film career of any Bond to date, was always going to be Bond first, right? That's what's going to stay on his uh, <laughs> on his tombstone, sadly, and and he'll be he'll be beloved because of it. Although I think he. You know, I sort of look at Sean Connery's film career and, and you know, he got he got his Oscar for The Untouchables and he had a lot of good roles. Um, you know, he sort of had his little sidestep with the Indiana Jones movie and Hunt for Red October, a personal favorite. Uh, will will lovingly remember Zardoz, which is he was trying to sort of figure out his 
his way through. But his elder statesman world in Hollywood and how it related to his role with Bond, it complemented it really well. And so I think he he sort of was able to achieve that elder statesman status uh, in a way that Brosnan didn't have the success. I think that Moore never never came close to that. And then Dalton, another bit of a blip. But but that's what I think Daniel Craig, if he and his agent are looking at it and they're saying, okay, I'm I'm now tired of having my knee ripped up filming these things. I'd like <laughs> to do other stuff. Um, how do I transition this into the next phase of my career? And I think he's looking at Connery's template as, as a way to do that, minus the you know, being lost in some of the sci-fi stuff um, in, in, in the middle as, as Sean was aging. You, you you don't dare to slag off Zardoz. I know you would never do that, but I'm not um, slagging it. I'm I'm celebrating it as <laughs> as something that as something that 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 true not only completists but but good '70s film scholars should should look at lovingly. The idea of an acting career, I think, is very different in the era that Daniel Craig has occupied than it was for any previous Bond. And if anything, he somehow to me kind of has this feeling like he's now just going to start being even more interesting post-Bond because he has every option in the world open to him and he has an an incredibly lucrative franchise. Is it also an Amazon franchise now? The Knives Out franchise? Did Amazon buy that too? I don't know who owns it, but that wouldn't surprise me. And it's some, I know some streamer did. Let me, let me, let me Google that. I think they've got, they've got him signed up for another two movies with that at least. You know, I think I look at it while you're looking this up. I see Daniel Craig kind of taking uh, a look at some of these other action stars back in the day who would say, you know, I'm going to do one you know, one studio showpiece for the money and then do something that's interesting and kind of go one on one off. I know that's what Harrison Ford tried to do when he sort of went went from Star Wars and um, Indiana Jones to like things like Mosquito Coast uh, and then to Witness and and things like that, where he would he would alternate between uh, the things that you know paid for the house and then the things that he thought were interesting that weren't necessarily going to be bringing the teenagers in. Well, you know, back in the day when the when when the when an actor had to have that you know one for them, one for me, kind of mode of operating, I think they made the they made movies that you could choose that were one for you. But I'm not so sure that happens anymore in Hollywood. You know, I think the the film landscape is so different that it's not as if there are a ton of uh, mid budget, highly promotable films that are being financed and made. You know, you have the top top end with these you know hundreds of millions of dollars being spent on cinematic universe franchises. And then you kind of have world cinema. And I'm not really sure what the business is in Hollywood anymore of quality mid-level films. Probably Netflix and Amazon Prime. I mean, they're the Pretty ones much. who are making, making those movies that, that, let's call it that $30 million movie that's right. too big to kind of self-finance, but too small to really make a dent in the studio system. And so, you know, you're either going to, like it was at Annapurna, the, the Ellison mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. producers who are happy to spend $30 million or you're going to a Netflix or Amazon Prime or maybe Apple who who have the money to spend to generate content to drive subscribers. So it's a little bit different than, say, the movie theater uh, business where, you know, you get, you're, you're paying, I guess it's now $20 for a movie ticket <laughs> uh, to go in and see it. Whereas, uh, you know, if you're just sitting in Netflix and watching Ted or Apple and watching Ted Lasso or Netflix and uh, catching something else that the 
the fame and the draw is a little bit different. The way these places get compensated are a little bit different. I, mean, I think it's a little scary, though, for those larger actors. You know, if you don't have that, let's call it cinematic franchise mm-hmm. movie, I don't think you get paid as much. Certainly no. you don't get paid as much, but I think by an order of magnitude less at the Netflix level, unless you really negotiate hard and you bring those eyeballs and potential new subscribers. It's not just people watching it. It's people who haven't heard of Netflix or Amazon Prime who are now going to spend 13 bucks a month to get on it, to watch it, and then stay on it to watch other things. It's a different type of draw now. So it's got to be a really good series. And, you know, hopefully, you know, Daniel Craig has, he's done the calculus on this, I'm sure, and his agents and so on are charting his path but the, the the numbers are there but they're different and how they're sliced up and given out nowadays i think is a lot different than maybe we're used to back in the stallone schwarzenegger days when getting people to pay eight bucks to come in and see predator it's just a different dynamic now run go get to the chopper it is Netflix that bought the Knives Out sequels with Rian Johnson directing and Daniel Craig starring. So at least for the next two Knives Out films, he's got that sort of emerging, very different than Bond comedic franchise, which is great. He's a very, very skilled comedic actor, and I really enjoyed seeing him in that. And you're right. It's it's definitely such a different, weird landscape. Just you saying that about the, used to be such a thing, right, in the in the 90s and the 2000s, you know, which actors are getting the $20, $25 million a film payday. And if you're not Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible, I don't think, uh, you know, or the or Robert Downey Jr. in Marvel, you're not really getting that money anymore. It doesn't exist. Those, it just doesn't make business sense. So that is interesting. Um, and I think Dan, and Daniel Craig is also appearing on Broadway. Yeah, he he seems like a real actor's actor in a lot of ways too, and so I could see him, Broadway, West End, you know, doing things that that tickle his fancy, and then he yeah. sort of retreats back. I think also Craig has emerged unscathed, except physically, as you noted, from being Bond for so long, which strikes me as not necessarily a fait accompli as you start off a run. I mean, there's so much at stake if the movies suck, right? that the weight of a franchise, it's easy for us just as people who consume entertainment, we don't feel that pressure so much. We either like it or we don't. Now with social media, you can do so cruelly online. He managed to kind of skirt this whole era of his Bond era fairly well, right? There are no controversies. There are no stinkers. The films were always, to me, very interesting and welcome and featured great actors and had all the stuff that we want in a Bond film, except I would pause it. The one thing that Bond doesn't really stand for anymore, and I'm not sure I could think of one from the Craig era, but maybe you'll correct me. You know, I'm, I'm used to one of the big events of a Bond film being the song, right? That, that doesn't seem like it's been the case for what four or five films. Can you name one song from the Daniel Craig era? I don't know if I could. Contradict you on one. I thought Adele's Skyfall was really good. Okay, Skyfall. Um, That's the only one I could name. 
And I, I remember the, uh, you know, the Chris Cornell one for uh, Casino Royale was okay. I don't uh, remember that. The, there was another one. Sam Smith? Um, you don't remember that, Sam, do you? That, no. There was a crossover <laughs> with James, uh, or the, the White Stripes guy and... Uh, oh, Jack White. Uh, somebody, yeah, Jack White and somebody else. And I, I was like, oh God, this is awful too. And... I, Who's the current one? Is it... Uh, Billy Eilish. Is it, oh, it's Billy Eilish, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's I've, it's good. I thought that it was I could, all right. I couldn't but... I couldn't hum it to you right now. No, no, no. no. But That's... I but I kind of vaguely remember thinking it was okay in watching it in the theater. So I don't know. But yeah, that the, that the, part the, is kind of over, I guess. I think you're right. It's really the only one I could note would be Adele. That was such a thing at the time. That's the last time it was a thing. I also love Skyfall, by the way. I don't know if you feel strongly about that. Yeah, I, I like Skyfall. It doesn't hold up as well for me as some of the other ones. But uh, I, strangely, the one... I, so I, Casino Royale is head and shoulders above, in my opinion, the sort of the Daniel Craig list here. The one that I, revisionist history is kind to it, at least for me, is Quantum of Solace, which mm. will get me left off the stage in a lot of ways. And I like it because I think that it's just they got a very simple plot beautifully shot there's there's lots of good gizmos and trinkets and fun stuff and sort of everything that you like from a bond movie and then it 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 for it it has that foreboding sense that specter is out there which i think is a is a nice thing to have it's uh um but you know sort of the skyfall and the uh uh gosh what's the one after that um specter specter was uh, specter i had sort of some issues with related to the fact that it just felt like it was name checking everything from the whole catalog and that it didn't mm-hmm. have as many original thoughts. Uh, and then no time to die, which as we get into it, I, I liked lots of parts of it. I was sort of lukewarm on some of the choices, but, uh, it'll be interesting to see once I've looked at it again, a couple of times, what I, what I think of it. Well, interestingly, you know, Quantum of Solace, I'm looking at sort of the awards list for Bond films and certainly Casino Royale, the first Daniel Craig Bond film, right? You know, was was heavily nominated for a bunch of BAFTAs and Quantum of Solace has two nominations. But I actually think, I agree with you, I think Quantum of Solace is a is a, just a really fun movie because they got the first one out of the way with the introduction. And I always think that's a little freighted for a bond. Like it just, you probably can't really relax in any aspect of it. Whereas you've already known that's working. So now you're making quantum of solace and maybe it's just fun. And then skyfall predictably is sort of kind of a highfalutin bond film in a way, I think, right? Like it's when I think of it, I don't think of the action of skyfall. I think of the, the inner torment of the Craig Bond, you know, and the the home, the Skyfall, all of those things. And of course, it's been it was nominated for a ton of things. Probably not as a not a coincidence. Yeah, no, I mean it. It it tries it, what it tries to do. I think it does well. It tries to go back into Bond's backstory and some of those things. And I, I don't know. It it it, 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 it upon reviewing it, I think it's uh, there are parts to it that I think are are really good. I like the casino scene is awesome, I, and mm-hmm. the assassination scene with the lighting within the building is it's just so beautifully shot and a really good. Uh, it's a good James Bond scene, and mm-hmm. uh, and so those types of things I really relish and like. Uh, you know, I think sort of you know Judy Dench's you know that that was her I would call it over involvement in the plot is uh, it's just 
didn't work for me as much as, uh, as some of the other things that are out there, but it's you know, to each their own. That's funny. You know, my, my wife, so we went and saw uh, no time to die. It was the second film I've seen in a movie theater. I think it was my wife's first film in a movie theater since the pandemic. So almost two years without being in a movie theater, probably a great deal of the sheer enjoyment I had for bond was being able to see it on the big screen and the action and how well directed it was, uh, by Kerry Joji Fukunaga. Uh, but I'm, it, it's funny, my wife kind of got interested in bond after that and then went back and started watching all the Daniel Craig bonds and she was watching casino Royale. And I was laughing because every time for what felt like three hours that I entered the room, he was just sitting at the tape the casino table. Uh, I was like, does this whole movie take place with him sitting at a table, like gambling with, uh, Mads Mikkelsen? Like, is, does the film ever leave that casino table? It just probably just happened to be when I walked in, but it was kind of funny. Yeah, no, and, and, and that's, I always sort of, my preference on the whole James Bond catalog is when the plots are simple, it just, it, everything drives <laughs> yeah, faster yes. with me. And so when you're you're at the, you know, casino table and you're playing Texas Hold'em and you've got the cast of characters, I mean, the funniest part in that whole movie is the, is the final hand. Hire full house. Ace is full of sixes. Monsieur Bond. Five and seven of spades. A straight flush, four to the eight, a high hand. I think it's obvious that all of them had to be cheating because they started with a straight <laughs> flush and it ended up with the end. And you're going, wait a minute, that's hmm, like how does that happen? Physically impossible. But, uh, um, well, wait a minute, hold on. In a casino, you have a multi-deck deal, don't you? You do, but uh, getting getting those different cards. I don't know what know, game they're playing. They're played Texas Hold'em, and so five of them in succession is like one in a <laughs> one in a trillion to the tenth power, or something like that. Let, uh, let's so. not dig too deeply into the plots; otherwise, the whole thing would fall apart. For crying out loud! Yeah, that's for sure. But uh, you know, once you suspend the disbelief and kind of enjoy the the sleight of hand that happened there, and uh, the fact that uh, Bond is able to look at uh, Lashif's. Uh, tell and understand that it's it's really cool. Okay, so let's discuss uh, briefly. No time to die. I'm going to try and make a very belabored analogy. For a Bond film to come out and for you to love it is probably as impossible as a Grateful Dead documentary coming out that I would love because we just know too much. So nothing that's made for a mass audience is really going to tickle our fancy. You have to have certain things. Cinematic universe stuff is where, for me, it kind of gets belabored. Like, I can't follow what the hell is going on with Spectre or anybody from film to film. I can't keep that in my head. 
Yeah, well, and so I guess one of the real genius points of the early Bond films, the Connery ones in particular, is that the, the you didn't have to keep it in your head. The the point was, Spectre is world domination. Each each thing was world domination plot within the movie, and it didn't really carry over into new ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, you really only started to get that once uh, you know Her Majesty's Secret Service happens when when you have James Bond's wife die at the end, and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden that has the potential to show okay James Bond versus Blofeld, and mm-hmm. then then you have to kind of remember where that came from. Right. Fast forward all the way to No Time to Die. You've got all the different things that you've got to you got to fit in there. You have to have the cars. You have to have the <laughs> gadgets. You have to have the love interest. You have to have the background characters, the Qs, the Ms, etc. You have to have a martini scene. You have to have a giant Bond James Bond scene, and then you add on to that kind of what's been building over the course of the last you know the Daniel Craig run basically, which is the development mm-hmm. of Spectre and Blofeld, and then. And uh, Leah Sadu's character, as and all of a sudden you you really got a lot to take on in No Time to Die. And so you know, as we were discussing earlier, it's actually a pretty darn good directorial effort to take all of the things that you have to do, and then all the things you wanted to do with the current arc, and put it together into something that was pretty coherent, and then come out the other side with something that you hope is compelling for for the audience. We talked before about how they squandered the goodwill of On Her Majesty's Secret Service by the, what I'm going to say is probably the worst Bond film, Diamonds Are Forever, right, right after it. The Return of Connery. Yep. You know, just the very intro, it's just so hackneyed and lame and it doesn't, it doesn't take up where On Her Majesty is left off. And I would argue no film does until really the end of No Time to Die, which very much harkens back to the end of On Her Majesty's Secret Service. So I just didn't know if, was there a continuity running through all those films, all the Roger Moore films and the the Daltons and the Brosnans and the Craigs, or did the Craig did the Craig run have its own continuity? It's a really good question. I think that the I think Diamonds Are Forever kind of spat on on Her Majesty's Secret Service in the opening scene where the the mm-hmm. Blofeld with hair gets gets dumped into a mud pit, and right. then then that's kind of it. Then it goes through the rest of it, and there's a double and all that, and then and then we've sort of moved into the camp world of the Roger Moores and beyond, I, I think they hit the pause button on the continuity. And as I sort of mm. think back, For Your Eyes Only had sort of an oblique reference to Blofeld in its opening uh, with that helicopter scene, but you never really, it never mm. really catches on. And then they decide at the Daniel Craig run, I think, to kind of have a, a multi-movie arc sort of fitted around mm. uh, a couple of different uh, secret organizations and then uh, and then more stable characters around it that people remember and talk about. I was kind of gleeful in the theater when I realized, wow, the film this is calling back to me the most is on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Yep. I mean, there is a direct line quote, uh, we've got all the time in the world. That's the line that the Lazenby Bond says to Diana Rigg in the car at the end. Yep. Right? It's, ex- it's exactly right. There's no hurry, you see. You have all the time in the world. <laughs> and that is repeated, except it's switched. It is the Lisa Du character. Right. What's her name? 
can't remember her name. I'm not a fan. <laughs> I'm not um, a fan either. That that uh, Madeline Swan. Madeline Swan. So they flip it. No, James, we've got all the time in the world. And he gives her this look. And that's when I almost like shouted out in the theater because I couldn't believe they were doing it. Like of all the Bond films, is that just, do you think like the screenwriter happens to feel like me and just is like, I am definitely going to do a callback to On Her Majesty's Secret Service. But I guess it's also the only one where you can kind of have this, when you have Bond in love for real, you have to kind of end it with the callback in that way. Or is it just another well, fan service moment that just means a lot to me because I love that film? Well, I love the film too, and it was fan service, but you're absolutely right. And then it's further confirmed with using Louis Armstrong's song when yes. the movie ends. <laughs> uh, so if, if you weren't so what's sure... what's going on? It's insane. If, like, it, wow. you know, if you weren't sure they were calling back to it, that should confirm it for <laughs> you. Um, and no, I, I think that you know for everything that made Honor Majesty's Secret Service so good, No Time to Die tries to reference a lot of it. I think that it um uh, my, my big problem and i think is that the chemistry between uh daniel craig and leah sadu just it's not there didn't do it for me and i it's I, not there i couldn't get it and whereas yeah. diana rigg and george lazenby freaking worked and totally and, worked. and i could believe it and she's feisty and spunky and or what about Anna Darmas, who was more crackly and alive and sparkling in like one or two scenes in No Time to Die than Leah Seydoux really could be. I mean, oh, she I, and Bond had great chemistry together. Uh, but I, I'm going to give you one, I'm going to give you uh, two defenses to Leah Seydoux and um, Mr. Robot Guy. Okay, first, <laughs> Leah Seydoux. Here's, here's my defense. Now, I wasn't a fan either, yep. but I will say, for the majority of the film, she's not with Bond. Right. So their chemistry, while palpably kind of not there in some arguably extremely key moments, particularly at the end, I do think that she is very, very compelling and maternal in all the other scenes which do not involve Bond. And that's kind of the majority of her screen time is that you know they're not physically together except in the beginning and at the end. So I could see that as kind of you know, she may be the right actress to handle the business that has to be handled once Bond thinks she's betrayed him, and then we are reintroduced to her. So I could give it the benefit of that doubt that, in a way, the end of the film, you're so invested in what you come to understand is going to happen with Bond, that their chemistry is not the, it's not the, the motivating factor at the end is not, oh my God, this couple that I fell in love with is losing a member right? It's Bond is dying. And that's the thing that you're really going to be moved by if you're moved. So that would be my Leah Seydoux defense. Allow, For Rami, I was, was going to say, allow me to counter argue. Uh, I, okay, I, go, I, go. I, I see your Leah Seydoux and I raise you one Ava Green, <laughs> uh, who I think True. had, who I think occupied the role and was, was Daniel Craig's equal or superior in Casino Royale. And that his sadness over her death, I just, it, it made She's more sense Berlin, to She's Vesper correct? That's right. And right. But I, she betrayed I, Bond and had to die. Yeah. Well, and that's what made it complicated. Okay. So, so Rami Malek, when you speak of casting, I always think it's one of those things. This movie comes out this year. It was probably supposed to come out last year, right? But when you think back to how films are made and how long it takes to make them, you know, really the reason he's cast here, in addition to that, he's a very good actor. And I think his acting chops, to me, are well-served in this film. But the reason he ends up cast in the film is because 
if you go back three years or four years, that's when he's really getting this blast of recognition, right? From from Mr. Robot and then his port his incredible portrayal in the Queen movie, right? So that's at that point, it's like this juicy opportunity is going to be presented, which is you're going to be cast as the villain in a Bond film. So I think that's how you can kind of understand why he's there is a career trajectory thing. But I thought that first scene with Leah Seydoux as a young girl and her mother, I thought that was a great opening. I thought it was haunting. I thought the mask was freaky. The fact that you never saw that it was Rami Malek was great. So that that totally worked for me. I thought that was really well done. It's also beautifully shot. The scene where really the bullets, beautifully shot. Where the bullets Incredible. are firing through the pond and the, the lake ice. and all that is yeah. you know, the cinematography wise, it's awesome. And I I thought it was really good and and chilling and haunting and scary, which you don't get as much in a James Bond movie at all. And so I I came out of that really kind of chomping at the bit, going, Okay, it, it's on. So on that front, I'm I'm totally with you. Yeah, and I guess what you didn't like is then when he appears and his persona from that point forward just felt underwritten. Uh, I, I thought that the first scene was like, okay, this is this is how he's established to Mr. White, who's Leah Madeline Swan's father, and correct, he, he's he's out for revenge and all that stuff, and saves her. So there's the connection. Like, okay, and then after that, all of a sudden he's. He's sort of going after Spectre himself, and then he's also got this uh, this private island in in between Japan and Russia that uh, he's going to kill all these people. And I, I didn't I didn't see where any of that came from. And then, and this <laughs> isn't his fault, really. It came from was, the Bond plot bottle they opened up. Yeah, that's right. This, you know, it's like uh, it's, it, 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 it's just it, a big MacGuffin. I mean, it, it always is, though, right? Like it, it, it's all it's always silly and contrived and. It's not like any, I mean, you've just described the exact murderous plot of every Bond villain ever. This is true. But that said, I, I just, the underwritten part, I mean, if for a movie that was trying to invest so much heft and weight into all the different characters underneath all of this, mm. it, it, it wasn't written enough for him. And, and mm. then I think he got a little theatery with it and in a sense overacted the role, which I know is sort of also something that happens with these Bond <laughs> villains, but it, it, it was the seriousness of the tone of the movie. It, it could have lightened up a little bit, or it could have had a little bit more background or fun or something like that associated with him to make him slightly less two dimensional uh, than some of the other ones we've seen going back in time. Well, as I said, I mean, I I probably literally stood up in the theater when she quoted the on Her Majesty's Secret Service line, and I couldn't believe they were going there. And then when they played the Louis Armstrong at the end, I was just floating on clouds. So nothing that happened prior to that really mattered to me anymore. This was my popcorn movie. It completely worked as that. And as you said, the cinematography and the action editing is astounding. I mean, at the highest level of a of a film of this type. I mean, that first motorcycle sequence and all of those things are so, you know, that that is also a thing that the franchise has had to take on and try to outdo itself with. And I think that becomes a black hole sometimes because, you know, how are we going to stage the most epic thing ever is kind of a trap to fall into. But uh, and it, it's, all cra of it's crazy, too, because my favorite scene in the whole catalog, the whole thing, 
is, is in From Russia with Love when Robert Shaw and Sean Connery mm. are in the train. You like that fight. Fighting. You love that fight. I, not just yes. the fight, but the before the no, fight. No, that's a great fight. The, yeah. But before the fight, when James Bond has to use Grant's greed against him to get him to tear gas himself with the suitcase. And that's mm-hmm. the intelligence of Bond. That's the, mm-hmm. the, the, that to me, then you wrap that up with a brutal fight scene. Very simple. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's not happening in space and it's not, you know, mm-hmm, on, mm-hmm. you know, the, the slopes of Stad and all that. Yeah. It's in a train car and these guys are beating the hell out of each other off of one of the best head fakes ever. And that to me, I'm like, that's, it, it, it yeah. harkens back to the books and it's sort of, it crystallizes the, it crystallizes the whole thing. You know, I think it's the apex of the, of the, of the whole series and so then i get to you know sort of the end parts with um you know when it gets grand and theatrical and this is where the brosnan movies just lost it completely and Mm -hmm. they need lasers and ice hotels and stuff like that i'm going oh come on let's make it simple let's get back to being brutal and 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 conniving and and intelligent and that's that and the and the fun uh you know the other scene in from russia with love when he's on the boat with uh the russian secret agent and you know he's trying to get the he's trying to get the dimensions of the lector to check back with hq to make sure mm-hmm. to do the deal and she's you know coming on to him she's like you know he's he's, he's like not now and like that's, right. that's funny and i i didn't get the i didn't get that fun and the warmth and the no time to die that that's one thing that i really was hoping for um well, i thought I there were a few that. good one-liners that he had i, I agree it wasn't it, it wasn't this that's never really been i think daniel craig is good for a few winking asides uh, I, I laughed out loud a couple of times, but that's not really his thing as much as if you like brutal hand-to-hand combat, I would say if you looked at all the hand-to-hand fight scenes that Daniel Craig has filmed in his five movies, I mean, they've got to stack up with the brutality of that fight you're talking about and some of the other ones. Some of those Sean Connery fights are are really impressively staged. The Daniel Craig opening one, when he gets his second kill to become a double O in the opening of mm-hmm. Casino Royale, that's that's right yeah, right insane. up there with with the from Russia with love one and that's 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 yes. the type of thing that I really like to see is when it gets you know hand to hand combat and not uh, you know missiles launched from yes. Satcom five. Okay, so now give me your list, your Bond actor rankings. Okay, this is a tough one. So, well, it's not tough. Number one, Connery. Uh, number two, I think in a surprise. I, I'm going to say Lazenby, which I, 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 one movie, everyone will make fun mm-hmm. of me for that. I just think he's, I, I think that movie is terrific in 50 different ways. And it, and mm-hmm. we talked about it in the other podcast. It is the biggest, what if, uh, mm-hmm. if he'd maintained it. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go Connery, Lazenby. Uh, I'm going to go Craig, um, and then more, and then, um, uh, Dalton and then Brosnan. And I am sad to put Brosnan at the end because I think he, I think his performances are better than the material he was given and the choices that were made in those movies. Um, I think Dalton 
I, I, I it, uh, by the way, two bits of fan service to, for for the listeners. Number one, the uh, '87 Volante Aston Martin that they pull out I mean, <laughs> is is a callback to the Living Daylights, uh, mm. which with Timothy Dalton, which is a badass. Okay, so Aston that's his Martin. that's his fan service right there. That's his fan service. Um, the other fan service, which is the deepest of deep cuts, is the garden that they're talking about. Uh, right in the <laughs> you mentioned this in the uh, uh, in the secret lair uh, is a mm-hmm. callback to mm-hmm. the book. Um, you only live not twice. even a movie, not in the movie, and it, it's it's there all these. <laughs> That's your moment where plants. you stood up in the theater and shouted, probably. Yeah, you you had you had you had Louis Armstrong. I go, they 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 called back to the book. They did the this garden. Amazing. They did the Garden of Death. I can't believe it. This is the best ever. And you know, and uh, you should so that, send the screenwriter a note because you're probably I, the one person that that he got with that. Well, that had to be uh, Phoebe. Uh, I bet she called back to that and said, "You know what? If we're gonna if we're gonna look all the way back, you know." You mean Barbara Broccoli? No, but Phoebe Waller. She was brought in. Oh, as, Phoebe Waller. Oh, was she brought in? To, she was did brought she do in. Some polish for, on this. I think so. Yeah. And uh, oh, okay. I think she sense. may have been like, oh, you know what? If we're gonna if we're gonna really give one to the dorks, let's uh, let's go back to the book and something that you know five people will have noticed. And I'm one of the five, I mm. think. So um, anyway, okay, she's so gonna then, she's gonna come back up in this podcast in a minute. But I, yeah. I think that your Bond rankings are exactly mine. Okay. Except for uh, at the end, but I would also say, of course, you can't have anyone but Sean Connery number one. Anyone who does is a fool or fooling themselves. There's no other possible. This is not even a. It's not a matter of personal taste. It's just that is the role. Like yep. that's the definition of the role. It's got to be Sean Connery. I agree with you. Number two is George Lazenby. And if anyone laughs at that, then they just don't know. They haven't watched the film, and they don't really understand and appreciate that this guy. Uh, and we've talked about it when we did on Her Majesty's Secret Service. I highly recommend people check out the documentary about George Lazenby and the whole story that he tells about how he came to pass up the Bond franchise. Had he not made that decision in 1969, which is a time period that's so relevant right now because we're all just watching the Peter Jackson Get Back series. Yep. That's 1969 the changes that were going on, the changes that the Beatles were going through really ties into what Lazenby was going through and what he thought he was going through and what he thought he was saying no to, which was sort of some corporatization of himself and all this other kind of bullshit that he fell prey to at the time. Kind of just being plucked from nowhere in obscurity to become James Bond didn't really do him any favors because he just didn't have the trappings of the right manager and agent and all of that stuff to help him and he, to talk he, him out of doing something stupid. Which he had he the worst training in the history you could possibly have to take him <laughs> on the role. And he was a male model before that and before yes. that selling Mercedes Benzes. And so and he was you, brilliant. He's, if, you, if you want to have a heightened sense of yourself over nothing, that's it right there. Yes. And so you understand thrown into, you magnify that 50 X. Uh, you're going to be in, you're going to be in trouble. Well, look, you know, it, it doesn't matter that he didn't make, you know, five or six movies like the rest of them or most of the rest of them to me, because if it's about the role and inhabiting the role, uh, this guy not only did it all in that film and did it incredibly well, even when Roger Moore comes in or Timothy Dalton or Pierce Brosnan or even Daniel Craig, like none of them was as seamless, a beautiful find as George Lazenby was. I agree and, with you. I, I, he, you know, he, 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 he just looked the part and he sounded like he the was. part and it just, he did, but he was different. 
And he, you know, he his, his, his Australianness gave him this preternatural ability to not take himself seriously. So that part of Bond was so well embodied by him. And the acting was handled by the fact that he could pretend to be sophisticated, which he clearly wasn't if you watch a documentary. I mean, he's like this wide boy from the Australian outback. He had right? a lot of so, experience pretending to be sophisticated. So yeah, <laughs> he wasn't he, acting. So, <laughs> so I'm with you. George Lasonby, the number two Bond of all time, no question. Had he made the next, I don't know, five or six Bond films, that would have taken him really through, you know, 89, 81 79, 80 would have taken him kind of into the 80s, right? which is kind of the Roger. He could have occupied the Roger Moore slot, basically, give or take the one Diamonds Are Forever appearance in between there. So it would have been yeah. interesting. But so I have him as number as number two as well. My number three is Craig, which I think you also said. Yep. And I think I would just, for me, I would switch the last two because I agree with you on the Brosnan material, but T- Timothy Dalton at least Pierce Brosnan, I feel warmly towards, and I think he's funny. I don't think Timothy Dalton is funny. So to me, Bond has to be funny. Bond has to have a sense of humor. Timothy Dalton didn't do that for me. Uh, Those are the most forgettable two Bond films. The fact that there's only two. I mean, even Pierce Brosnan had four for crying out loud. That tells you something right there. So I would flip those two. Yep. I didn't put Roger Moore though, did I? No, he's, I I had him right in the middle, right behind Craig, Mm -hmm. which I I don't know. I look at Roger Moore. I I don't even, you know what? Can we stop giving Roger Moore, like, can we stop pretending that Roger Moore was a great Bond? Can we just properly, can we just properly put him in the tier with Timothy Dalton and Pierce Brosnan once and for all? Because that's where he belongs. I'm not quite there. I, I, I I think his, the, the, the wink and a nod. All those movies are bad. Um, all those movies are bad well uh, even if you're even if i grant you that they're not great i i have to say for your <laughs> for your eyes only is uh, again because it went back to being simple and it went back to you know it it, it just stripped it back down it let more kind of uh give himself a chance at least to, you didn't say act. moonraker oh no, that's <laughs> uh, no thanks no, that, that, i think you're reacting to the fact that it wasn't moonraker yeah. They, no, right. It's a <laughs> good point. Well, everything's up for better. That's probably the last, that's probably one of the last great theme songs for your eyes only, right? Yep. That's, that's a good one. I don't know. I, I think Roger Moore gets a lot of overpraise. I just think when I, when I see him in Bond, I just think girdle. I think a man is wearing oh. a girdle. Uh, so I, I'm going to put him, for me, he's in that, he's in the third tier. He's okay. in the Dalton. He's at the top of the third tier. I'll give you that. I'll put him before. Before Dalton, I mean, before Brosnan uh, and Dalton, unfortunately, comes in last. Here's an interesting fact. Uh, I was looking back at the gap between Bonds. So in other words, how much time did MGM and the Broccolis allow to pass between the introduction of a new Bond? So between Sean Connery and George Lazenby, you have a two-year gap. 67 is you only live twice. And 69, as we said, is on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Mm, okay. Th- then you have a two-year gap again before Connery forgettably comes back in uh, in Diamonds Are Forever, which he probably shouldn't have done, but I understand why they did that. So that's a two-year gap between Lazenby and Connery's return, which is essentially the amount of time it took them to film and edit the films probably, right? Yeah. And then... You have a two-year gap between Connery and Moore. The first Roger Moore film is Live and Let Die in 1973, 
with, of course, the epic Paul McCartney theme song. Mm-hmm. That's a two-year gap. Then, interestingly, and I don't know why, you have a six-year gap between Timothy Dalton and Pierce Brosnan. I... 89 to 95. That's almost, that feels like two different, I mean, it's two different decades, but it just feels like that's two different time spaces to me. The difference between 1989 and 1995 is so different. I'm not sure if it was the search or whether by that point we know enough about, do we know enough about franchise fatigue that maybe they sort of thought, you know, let's give this a break because you've had Star Wars, you've had, you know, uh, Indiana Jones, you have other kind of tentpole things that emerged by that point. I don't know what the difference was, but there was a six year gap between Timothy Dalton and Pierce Brosnan. When was, when was the last Timothy Dalton movie? The last Timothy Dalton movie was uh, 1989. So yeah. So in 89, you know, we are not quite back in that sort of meta self-referential revisionist Mm -hmm. history, you know, looking back darkly Mm -hmm. mode yet. I kind of look at films like Pulp Fiction and so on and saying, okay, that, that's when Hollywood sort of got flipped over on itself and had its Kurt Cobain moment, maybe, you know, skewering sacred cows and things like that. So maybe it just took a while for the broccolis to kind of say, okay, what, what, what are we doing here? And then, you know, they're trying to digest all of this. The Dalton movies didn't do very well. And so they're saying, you know, how do we ramp this up? And just took that amount of time. I remember when Goldeneye came out and Brosnan came in, I was very excited and it, 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 you know, it, it was good. And I remember I was pleased coming out of the movie, but uh, yeah, it, 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 it didn't, it, it's, it's just amazing the choices they have to make on this in order to sort of surf this thing forward. Well, Roger Moore, I mean, the box office is interesting to look at. I mean, box office is tough to look at just as a comparative thing because Different eras, there's different realities about box office. But if you look at the the raw numbers, you know, Roger Moore from Moonraker on was trending in the wrong direction, box office-wise. And his box office is dropping from a height of $210 million for Moonraker to $152 million by the time A View to the Kill comes out in 1985. So... 1985, A View to a Kill, and then Living Daylights is the first Timothy Dalton two years later in 87. And it did jump the box office. It's 191 million compared to 152 million for the first Timothy Dalton effort. And then maybe this is the thing. The next Timothy Dalton effort, which is two years later, Licensed to Kill, is 100, drops to 156 million. Right. But when we wait six years between Timothy Dalton and Pierce Brosnan taking over GoldenEye, big hyped movie. This is where franchise fatigue maybe starts to come in, where if you let these things settle for a while, the goodwill returns and people kind of don't feel like they've seen it all last year. So more than double box office, $352 million for GoldenEye, which at that point is the highest grossing Bond film of all time. Right. Yep. So Pierce Brosnan... Pierce, Pierce Brosnan, you know, he, he's, he picked the franchise up and his next one also made over $300 million, as did his next one. And guess what? In Die Another Day, his last one made $400 million. So Bond is kind of like this peaking economic engine, actually, under the Pierce Brosnan era, which he doesn't really get credit for. And then we have the gap between Pierce Brosnan and Daniel Craig. And that's another four-year gap between Die Another Day in 2002 
uh, directed by Lee Tomahori that made 432 million. But again, the first Bond film that cost a hundred million dollars was a was a Pierce Brosnan film. That's Tomorrow Never Dies in 1997 was the first Bond film that was budgeted at 110 million dollars, and the budgets have gone up every year since. Yeah, I mean, so, it's, it's turned into an arms race, and uh, the you know th- those those numbers are interesting because yeah, Brosnan had to you know he had to credibly steer the ship and. Uh, you know, that's, that's development by committee. It sounds like too, where, you know, it's laser beams and planes and explosions and so on and so forth as, as much as the actor. And, uh, you know, I think they rode that horse as long as they could. And, and then I, I'd be interested to hear, I mean, I guess they probably thought that Pierce had aged out of the role, but by the last one, um, that must, that that would have been an interesting discussion to have. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, he's so it's it's 95 through 2002. Yep. So it, it's, you know, it's almost a 10 year run. But yeah, the franchise wasn't it wasn't like other transitions where the box office is failing. And so you can understand why they made why they made a change. But it's funny, the first Bond film, Dr. No, the budget was one million dollars. Hmm. It's incredible to think about, you know, We've gone from one million dollars to No Time to Die costing two hundred and fifty million dollars. It's incredible. Yeah. So four years between Brosnan and Craig, uh, which is a good gap, I think. And my point is, I think that now we we are going to need after this. Everyone would would agree a very successful run, uh, a franchise reinvigorating run by Daniel Craig. I think they really have to wait, you know, between four to five years probably before they bring Bond back. Oh, I, I agree. You know what? I don't need to see it <laughs> in its current form for a little mm-hmm. bit. And I'm a huge fan, would consume anything that they put out. But I, I think you're right. I think it's time to hit the pause button. And and they've, you know, with this last movie, they, they've forced the audience to really reconsider where the character fits within the uh, sort of the zeitgeist of mm-hmm. popular culture. And then, you know, for fanboys like me, where it exists within their within their mind. And I, I'll be interested to see what the choices are that they make. It probably leads leads well into that discussion of, you know, if you're hitting the pause button, what do you mm-hmm. want it to come back looking like, and and who do you want to who do you want to fill the tuxedo? Which is always the <laughs> the, the the ten million dollar question. Probably more than that now. <laughs> yeah, and actually, let's say we don't expect to see Bond on screen before 2025, 2026, Let's say, right? right? What that really means is you're filming this movie anywhere from twenty twenty three to twenty twenty four. Yep. So that's not that far away in the film world. And if you're filming in 2023, you kind of have to have this person cast in the next six to nine months yep. because you need their services available to you in what must be a very far-ranging contract for a number of films. So if it's 2026 that the movie comes out, you may have a little more room for that, but that's why I thought you know Barbara Broccoli has been quoted and the head of MGM was quoted saying, like, we're not even going to have this discussion until 2023 because Daniel Craig deserves this final lap. And that, that final lap should run through, obviously, award season and, and maybe the conversation is picked up, you know, next summer. Uh, maybe there's an announcement somewhere around there. So I, I think it's the right thing to do. 
However, and this is our segue, yes, into who the next Bond could be. However, I could make an argument that to take some of the weight off who the next Bond is, to the extent that it's possible to do that, maybe, and I mentioned this to you before, maybe it's time to contemplate what Star Wars did, where you have Rogue One, a Star Wars story, and it's a standalone film that is not meant to be, it is canon in the you know, cinematic universe term, but it's not part of the continuity of these sequence of films that comprise the major cinematic universe, right? It's a standalone film that tells yep. a standalone story. Is it possible and desirable to do that with Bond over the next four to five years while we wait for a formal Bond? I think it's more than possible. I, it, not only Rogue One, which I think measures up quite well with the, that whole series, which, mm-hmm. is, which is done well, but the last three in particular, oh gosh, uh, the Rogue One definitely holds up well. But I point more toward the Mandalorian as the example there, where <laughs> yes, you could you could have two, uh, you know, two series with a subset, a very simple Western themed story, which did well, provided the fanboy service, provided the simple eyeball attracting long form thing for for fans and to get people mm-hmm. introduced and to test out certain things without blowing up the franchise if amazon's looking for something like that to you know use their mgm ownership stake to force the issue i think that would be a great way to test it i think you could do it either with sort of current james bond stories you know little missions he's on and and things he's running around trying to fix or you can focus on his development in the navy before he becomes a mm-hmm. secret agent you know there are different ways you could take it without blowing everything up and you can give people the chance to to do it to take on that role i i the <laughs> the, the one thing i don't want to have happen is, is something similar to what happened in the Indiana Jones franchise when River Phoenix was young Indy, which was fine until he yells that famous quote. It's like, it belongs in the museum. And I'm like, Oh, that's, <laughs> that's mm-hmm. unfortunate. Uh, you, yeah. you'd, you'd want, but that's, you, you want those tests to happen at the TV series level or at the streaming level where, you know, the, the groaning would be instantaneous. The internet would go crazy and all that stuff, but, you, but people would move on quickly. And so that when well, they're going to go crazy anyway, yeah, right. That's true. Uh, so whatever happens, they're going to go crazy. I mean, they did set up Lashana Lynch as a 007 in No Time to Die. Right. I, I read a quote where she said, I don't know what's going to happen, but I do know that if they gave me the chance, you know, she wants to take it to some places that she was like, I don't think they'd want to go where I'd want to go. Right. Yeah. She'd, she'd want to go into the black female experience and other things that would arguably be very interesting to see navigated through the Bond universe. But I'm not sure whether the inclusion of that character as a 007 was meant to sort of tee something up or was just introducing perhaps the concept there that there are more 007s. And, and maybe that does give us a bridge, if necessary, to standalone films. Yeah, uh, look, I mean, I'm, I'm not against something like that happening, but I, I love the idea of her maybe being 008. Then, you know, if I'm being real mercenary about it, I'm thinking about it from, you know, Team Bezos saying, okay, well, uh, I've now got 007 that I can exploit, now 008, 
which, you know, I sort of look at, I analogize that in many ways to sort of the Miles Morales Spider-Man, as opposed mm. to just the Peter Parker Spider-Man. You've suddenly got two right. that you can exploit and use to reach the next generation or a broader demographic than you, tra- you traditionally had without necessarily necessarily blowing up the fanboys. Right. So I that would be, if it were me running the studio, that's how I would probably move it and, you know, sort of maybe give her a Mandalorian type series to, you know, spread her wings. Mm-hmm. And, and you could really explore the black experience, the female experience, mm-hmm. the different things going on in a longer form and, and fast track the sort of the public's backstory with that character in a way that is it's tough to do zero to 60 in a two hour movie um, mm-hmm. where people mm-hmm. would be disappointed and not have that context. You could maybe build that somewhere else. Um, so that, so I, I think is a really interesting thing. And then, you know, then the question is, you know, if you go back to the James Bond movie concept versus the series, I, I ask the question, who, who do you, whom do you put in the role? And, uh, I, as a traditionalist, I suppose, I, I think James Bond to me needs to be tall, dark, and handsome. Uh, mm-hmm. and so anything that veers from that, there better be a, a good, explanation i think the idea of an aging out bond has been removed from possibility with the end of no time to die but you know there there's the usual suspects who are named out there i, I you know, well, wait, let me let me let me clarify something when you say tall dark and handsome yep. are you using a code for white bond or you are not using a code for a white bond i am okay with the concept of a non white bond and i you know idris elba who i think would be sort of everyone's mm-hmm. usual sort of pick for something like that would be great i'm afraid he might be a little old for the part now if they are thinking about making a movie 3 or 4 years mm-hmm. from now however long it takes but the, sure. the the person who i think you know there's all there's a whole bunch of names out there but the guy to me who exudes the humor and the sexual charm and the physicality of the role is reggie jean page from bridgerton uh mm-hmm. and you know you're getting him right at the right time if you were to really modernize if you were to modernize the character and, and have him in a modern setting that that would be the guy I think that that I think you know. Uh, guys are like you know, he's a pretty smooth cat, and women mm-hmm. are like that is one sexy person. That's what James <laughs> Bond kind of has to has to encompass, mm-hmm. and so he fits within that broader tall, dark, and handsome component where uh, you know the Tom Hardys and the uh, Cavills mm-hmm. and people like that normally reside. Uh, but it, it, there's there's no obvious one yet. Reggie's probably the most obvious one to me. I'll be interested to see how that how that decision making process carries out. Well, here's one thing he has going in his favor. Every bond at the time they're chosen to be bond. It's hard to remember this because they go on to have careers not only defined by Bond, and it's such a singular thing to be Bond. I think someone famously said, more men have walked on the moon than have played the role. <laughs> so that, that gives you an indication of how rare it is. But every Bond, at the time that they're chosen to be Bond, really has a very specific background, which is kind of mostly TV work, a few films, but not really starring roles at the time that they are plucked and put into the Bond role. And I think that's probably a very specific choice because certainly the producers probably feel that they never want the actor to overwhelm the role at the time they take the role. They understand that the actor probably will overwhelm the role over the course of the arc of the four or five or six films that they might be lucky enough to do. 
But I think at the time they're choosing their bonds, if you look at Daniel Craig's career prior to that, a lot of TV work, few films, but not he's not a movie star. Pierce Brosnan, same thing. Tremendous amount of TV work. Not really a feature film star at the time he's cast as Bond in 1994. I don't even know what Timothy Dalton's background is, but let's just assume he's pretty unknown. Oh, no, Roger he, Moore, he, as you said. He was in Flash Gordon. That by itself is justification oh. enough. <laughs> <laughs> Roger Moore, as you say, really before, you know, he, he's in Bond 1973. So really before that, it's really about the saint. He's not a movie star. Yep. Lazenby, as we pointed out, had no, no film or TV career whatsoever prior to Bond. And, you know, Connery, uh, pre-1962, he had been in some films, you know, some, some smaller British films, maybe a couple of big war pictures of that sort, but really as part of an ensemble and not a movie star. So your pick there fits that, right? He's been a member of the Shonda universe for quite a while, a TV actor primarily. Yep. I don't know him well enough. I never saw Bridgerton, so I can't really, I, I don't have a feel for him as an actor to think if he could sort of believably step in and do this but he certainly has that right type of you're kind of familiar with him but he's not overexposed thing that i think is one way that they've traditionally gone it may not be possible to do that anymore but that's one way they've traditionally done it i think that's kind of the problem for the henry cavills of the world i'm a big henry cavill fan i think he's great i really enjoyed him in the enola holmes film i think he can do a lot of things really really well i think he handles himself really really well i think a franchise is in good hands with someone like that but i also think he's kind of almost too big of a star at this point and i think a lot of the names that get bandied about probably fall into that same category yeah no i i, I like Cavill too i i i think he's underrated as superman as as the even though mm-hmm. those two movies get kind of oh, underrated and the yes. Justice League and all that, that that's, those are, those aren't him issues. I think he, he plays no. that pretty, pretty well, actually. And he's certainly, handsome if not the best it. it's ever been played, I would even go that far. Well, well that's, uh, uh, I mean, he's a much better actor. Crazy. Well, he's a much better actor, nothing against Chris Reeves, who's the iconic Superman for all time. He's the, he's the Sean Connery of the role. Right. But Henry Cavill is a much more nuanced and better actor than Christopher Reeve was. Uh, no, so, no argument there. It's so, the, so he's the, able to do a lot more things in that character than. Yeah, but I, you, you know, know. I, I look at guys like Hiddleston and who else? Uh, Jamie Bell. Uh, Henry Henry Golding is an interesting name that's been bandied about. Right. I, I just I I don't know. I I don't want Bond to get too sort of fay. You know, there's got to be a brute. A brutishness mm-hmm. to it and uh, well that's tom Richard hardy Ritten. then that's tom hardy tom hardy's he's he's almost 50 now isn't he but you know tom hardy is kind of more i, I think he's cut from the same cloth as a daniel craig bond that brutish bond that you're talking about i think right. i actually think it's time and i i hate to use this example but it's time to go back to a roger moore era bond for a few films it's time to get away from the brutality and the beating that daniel craig's character took it's kind of time for it's time for the it's time for the um the whales star trek movie 
you know, one where we're just going to have some fun. I, I agree with you. And I, and that, that may be where I'm sort of looking at Reggie John page and saying, you know, this guy, the, the, he's, he's got the wink and the smirk and, and the, and the, the, the wry smile. And, you know, the, I think he can pull off bringing the audience and, and having them be a part of it as opposed to the, the bludgeon we've been getting the last four or five movies, yes. which, uh, you know, has its place, but uh, you can only, you can only eat so many bricks. Yeah, I mean, that's why I think I would discard someone like like Tom Hardy. And I would also discard some of the pretty faces that get mentioned, like Sam Hugan, the guy from Outlander, he gets mentioned. Right. Tom Holland, you mentioned? No. No. It's, uh, no. Richard Madden, no. Even Tom Hiddleston, no. You know, James Norton, like these kind of, you're kind of run-of-the-mill white guy, I, I don't think is is the choice here. I like that idea where it's like, you know what? Okay. It's time to, it's time to be Roger Moore for a few of these and, and bring the, bring the fun back, include the audience in it, maybe make it a slightly more, I hate to put it this way, cartoonish experience as opposed to sort of this born identity type of experience. Okay. So I've got two, my, I have two for my list. One of them you've already mentioned, Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Yep. Uh, I could absolutely see her do this. I could see her becoming, you can still be named James Bond, by the way. There are, there are women named James. That could be, that could play well into her sense of humor and explaining that, whatever, however they want to handle that. If the character is going to be James Bond, I think she could do this. I think she could do the action. She can certainly do the wounded heart part of Bond. That's an essential part of Bond too, right? There's a heart. It's been hurt. It's still open, but closed. She can do that. The comedy, of course, would never be in better hands. And she's a really good actor. Um, so she would be someone I think would be extremely compelling to see step into the role. And my, my other choice is admittedly a wild card. But for some reason, I can't stop thinking that this would be a great choice. I don't know if you know who Will Sharp is. If you saw, did you see Giri Haji? Yes. Um, yes, I did. Okay. So he just blew me away. He's one of those actors that I, first time I saw him on screen, I said, who the fuck is that? That guy just leapt off the screen. He played Rodney in Giri Haji, yep. which I think is on Netflix. Mm -hmm. He also just recently directed The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne, which has Benedict Cumberbatch in it. And he's a really talented, interesting guy. He's very unique looking. I think he's probably... Uh, half Japanese, half English. He's a creative force kind of in the same way Phoebe Waller-Bridge is. He's a writer, he's a director, he's an actor. He has a screen presence, like an undeniable screen presence. And he's kind of a little different, which I think if, if Bond exists within Britain in our mindset here, and it is time to branch out from the white Bond universe I think you're going to have to look at choices like this that I think take us into interesting territory and allow the character to continue forward, but without also like, we don't need Bond to sort of become a way to comment on the political realities of modern society. You know, I don't think that's the role of James Bond. We have plenty of other things in entertainment that exist that do that much better than Bond ever could. Yep. But I think someone like Will Sharp, someone like Phoebe Waller-Bridge would be fascinating to think about. I'm, I'm going to chew not, on that. I, I like those. Yeah. I like those two ideas. I think. I think. I, I have so much respect for Phoebe. Fleabag is just one of these things that is 
brilliant on so many levels. And if she could take mm-hmm. 75% of that and make it a little bit more masculine and, you know, put it in more of an assassin component, mm-hmm. I, yeah, that, that makes sense. And then uh, Will Sharp, I hadn't thought of that. And I think that's, the, I, I love Kiri Haji. I thought that was a spectacular show. Really good. And it, it didn't sort of speak to me to, oh, you know, this guy's up for James Bond quite like Lair Cake did for Daniel Craig, but I am going to chew on that. I think that's a good idea. Yeah. It's an interesting, I mean, uh, I can't think of the last time somebody's screen presence leapt off the screen. He's not even the star of that show either, by the way. Right. right. He's just, he's a supporting character. And uh, I just was, that, that's a certain thing, right? And he's not really well known outside of the UK. He's certainly not really well known to United States audiences yet, but he's very well known in the UK. And I don't know, those are some interesting things. Here's another little thing we can wrap up with. I, I pulled up a list of, there's a great things on Wikipedia, of course. One is uh, actors considered for the James Bond character, considered but not chosen, and considered but passed on the role. Ooh. So that's fascinating because there's some really interesting names here going back to the beginning. So let's just start from the very beginning. Richard Burton oh. passed twice, both for Dr. No and, again, passed on Her Majesty's Secret Service because he felt in Dr. No that the role was a new and untested concept, and he also wanted more money, being Richard Burton. Right. Well, so that would have taken Bond in a very different direction. The, the alcohol would have been taken care of with that character. <laughs> no method acting there. <laughs> Cary Grant, also for Dr. No. Interesting. He felt he was too old because he was 58, and he also just wanted to do one film. A young Cary Grant, that would have been... That would have been a no-brainer. would have been really interesting. Another doctor now, James Mason. Hmm. Who, of course, later played Hugo Drax in your favorite Roger Moore film, Moonraker. Right. So, Patrick McGuhan. Of prisoner fame. Bizarrely, the, the reason he passed, the, given is he felt the role was too promiscuous says Patrick McGowan, who chewed scenery in like several late 70s Columbos. Right. I mean, talk about promiscuous. <laughs> uh, Rod Taylor, Steve Reeves. Here's a weird one. Lord Lucan. Do you know the story of Lord Lucan, who became infamous after he vanished following a murder? No idea. He's one, of the, he's one of the most notorious, you know, missing British noble people. Huh. Uh, he was apparently also considered for Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Huh, interesting. In the 70s, Diamonds Are Forever, Clint Eastwood, Burt Reynolds, and Adam West all felt Bond must be British. Yeah. Thankfully. Yeah. Thankfully. I, I, all, all, that, the, all of that would have been a massive disaster. Uh, 94 for Goldeneye. This is the, that's the first Brosnan film, obviously. Liam Neeson was offered the role. Hmm. At the time, he was not interested in starring in action films. And then the Wikipedia says, however, in reality, his later wife, Natasha Richardson, wouldn't have married him if he took the role. I don't know what that the hell, that the hell that's about. I, there's got to be, I'd like to know more about that. <laughs> <laughs> and then in 2005 for Casino Royale, which of course would become the first Daniel Craig film, two actors were offered the role. Dominic West. In 2005, Dominic West. That's wow. probably post The Wire, but I'm not sure where that is in his career. And Christian Bale. Hmm. So 
Dominic West heard a rumor that Pierce Brosnan would return and ruled himself out. And Christian Bale felt that the franchise was very British and represented, quote, every despicable stereotype about England and British actors, and that he had, quote, already played a serial killer, end quote, in American Psycho. Okay. That's, uh, there's Christian Bale for you. Christian had some political <laughs> issues with the role, I guess. But uh, so those were some, some actors who actually were offered the chance to become Bond and passed for a variety of reasons. Oh God! Like Clint Eastwood or Burt Reynolds as James Bond. Oh gosh, none of none of. <laughs> I mean, that it's amazing good. that they've. It's amazing they've avoided those pitfalls, isn't it? I mean, I, there's there's got to be a good coffee table book of of the the roles <laughs> the roles passed on. Oh right? yes, uh, you know you that's talk a great about, idea. Uh, what what's the big one where? Uh, you know, Indiana Jones was going to go to Tom Selleck and they wouldn't let him out of Magnum P.I. And Pierce Brosnan famously <laughs> couldn't play James Bond. Uh, in fact, I, if I remember right, correctly, Timothy right. Dalton got the role because Remington Steele. Pierce, got, Remington they, Steele. <laughs> they, they, they called him 10 minutes after he signed the contract and said, you can't do it. We're pulling you back. And, you know, so that that hit the pause button on that for a bunch of years. Um, yeah, you know, what might have been all sorts of roles. Crazy. Mm. Well, it's going to be interesting to see. I think it will be an interesting hiatus from Bond over the next four or five years. And we will have to regroup and do it again once the next Bond is announced or the direction for the franchise. I think that you're probably right that given Amazon's purchasing, what we can probably expect is going to be something along the lines of what we've seen with Dune, which you have the film, but then you also sort of have a uh, a series announced that covers you know, a different aspect of the intellectual property. So I believe there's a series that's been announced, which is a spinoff of the Denis Villeneuve v- uh, Dune films, which is all about the Bene Gesserit, just the, the, the witchy coven of, you know, female mystics, which are, which are featured in the film and the books. So I, I could see a Bond universe kind of developing, which includes some form of a streaming series, Maybe a Bond origin story, I think, is another way to reboot, because I think we should have also mentioned when they do reboot franchises, how do they do it? And one of the typical ways is to go back to the beginning. They did that in Star Trek with the first J.J. Abrams film, You know, going back to the origins of these characters and how they found themselves coming into Starfleet and becoming Captain Kirk and Spock and all of those things. You could go back to the beginning, and then that gives you tradecraft training, a more kind of um, traditionally British espionage-esque kind of film, as opposed to these giant budget action films. I'm not sure if that would be acceptable to people, but you could go back to the beginning of the character if you wanted to. Yeah, I mean, I I would almost take an idea like, you know, the Frederick Forsyth novel, Day of the Jackal, and just, you know, this hunt for this this assassin uh, who's going to kill the prime minister of France and have that be, you know, one of James Bond's first assignments, you know, something Mm -hmm. along those lines. Mm -hmm. And that, that simple plot, you know, you you can stretch that over a couple of days and really integrate, you know, origin components to the story that way. And then it takes them through Europe and nice places and scenery and cars and all the fun stuff with that. But uh, uh, if I were at the helm, I'd think that'd be an interesting idea. Yeah, because you could say that something like Kingsman, you know, has eaten a bit of Bond lunch in a new way. And, you know, maybe if you go back to something that allows you to go to the early 60s, you know, I mean, I think Hollywood always loves to be in the 60s or the 70s. 
you know, I mean, a seventies bond shot now would be very interesting too. Um, I don't know. So it, it, there's a lot of ways it could go. It's going to be a very interesting thing. I like to watch when major Hollywood franchises worth billions and billions of dollars make next steps because it's going to be very interesting to see how they address and diffuse the eventual criticism and who gets cast in this iconic role and where the franchise goes from here. And I know that when that happens, we will have you back on to talk all about it. So thanks for joining me again, Frazier. I appreciate it. Uh, Thanks for having me on. It's always a lot of fun. Okay, buddy. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. 